0: Hello and welcome to the Kielder Observatory podcast for December 2021. I'm Ian Brannan and in this episode joined by Director of Astronomy Dan Pye and fellow science communicators and astronomers Ellie MacDonald and Adam Shaw as we explore some of the things to look out for over the final weeks of 2021 in the night sky including a comet and we're also joined by a special guest Dr Olivia Jones of the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh who's an expert on the James Webb Telescope which launches very soon, hopefully, and when it does, it'll bring us a whole new view of the universe. She's an STFC Web Fellow at the UK Astronomy Technology Centre at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh and very much knows absolutely everything there is to know about the James Webb Telescope. Plus, for the first time, this podcast was recorded live in front of an audience on our Facebook page. You can actually watch it again if you head over to the Kielder Observatory Facebook page and look at the Facebook Live if you want to see us in person, but we did ask for some of your questions for Ask an Astronomer. But first of all, let's get an update on what's been happening at Kielder Observatory. As you'll be well aware, the weather hasn't been particularly kind, Uh, especially in the uh, northeast of England. And Storm Arwen certainly did some damage across Kielder Forest. Um, But the good news, if there is a shred of good news, that Kielder Observatory largely stood the test of what Storm Arwen had to throw at it. That is the case, isn't it, Dan? I think uh, you uh, emerged fairly unscathed. The bigger problem was the, uh, the effect of the trees falling down, Along the uh, along the track up to the observatory and uh, the damage to the forest in general, but uh, the observatory building did stand the test. That's right, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it did. Um, I'm very happy to uh, to announce that. Yeah, it didn't slide down the hill like some kind of slalom that I expected it to be. It was. Uh, <laughs> it's it's fine. It's in one piece, um, still on its stilts. Uh, the only, in fact, the only thing that actually broke was the um, was a little plastic shed next the observatory which was holding some of our grit um so aside from that everything else is absolutely fine the radio telescope's fine the observatory's fine um and everything is 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 back to normal hopefully from tomorrow in fact we hope
0: yes reopening um tomorrow of course if you've got tickets for that event um there, there are a few buts to that aren't there in that um, whilst the observatory is open there are still some issues throughout the forest because it was kielder forest really that was damaged a lot of trees fell down you might have seen some of the photos um and um it was all a bit of a mess but you're advised not to head into uh, any of the forest there is um how it looked that's the track up to to kielder observatory Mm. um after storm arwen and that has been the main problem in that um, you couldn't actually uh, drive up there number one um but yeah. (laughs) yeah
1: Yeah, absolutely. All, the, all those trees have now been cleared out of the way, which is uh, nice. And, and Forestry England have been absolutely incredible at uh, getting people out of sticky situations and um, bringing Kielder back to the rest of the world as well, because being such a, a remote village, the most remote village in England, the people who lived there were without power for such a long period of time. And of course, weren't able to leave Kielder for a, a period of time as well, due to the, the amount of trees down um, and the instability of those trees. So, Forestry England have done an incredible comprehensive check of all of the trees uh, in the perimeter of our track, um, and uh, and hopefully by by tomorrow that that will all be satisfactory and we'll be able to reopen. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely, it's everything is, is looking good. But the 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 one thing to add is that yes, you can come to the observatory, yes, uh, but you must leave straight away. Uh, essentially, we can't you can't go on any walks around the observatory um unfortunately yeah just stay out of the woods for the time being because uh of course yeah, stay uh, out the
0: woods. <laughs> not, the, not that at one o'clock in the morning you should it would be recommended to be going on a ramble around there anyway but um yeah it's uh, mm. some of the trees obviously still unstable so um for safety reasons yeah. at the moment um and all the alien yeah, well, of course, it goes without saying the aliens. Uh, we know about that. Um, let's have a look ahead to, to what's happening in the night sky then over the cl- closing few weeks of this year into December now, heading into 2022. Um, there is one particular event that I'm reading about. Um, the comet Leonard A1, uh, or is it A11? Uh, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Is it comet? Well, it's Leonard. But it is, this is what it looks like. Um, that is going to be in the Ooh. night sky and, um, and visible with the naked eye.
1: Yeah, so um, at the moment it is down to an official uh, magnitude which is visible to the naked eye. Now, it's going to require some specific um, sets of, of requirements in order to be able to see it with the naked eye. First off, it's got to be clear. Secondly, um, really, what you want to do is be getting somewhere that is dark in order to be able to see it because it is a very faint object to see. If you've got a pair of binoculars, then we want to be trying to point out this object just underneath the plough down towards the uh, the northeastern horizon just after sunrise. Okay, so look
0: out for that. Um, that's uh, Comet Leonard, which will be a fixture for what, the next few
1: weeks or so? Did I say just after sunrise there or just Just before? before I think you said
0: just before sunrise.
1: I, yeah that's that's the right thing <laughs> just after sunrise of course that wouldn't be that wouldn't work <laughs> yeah you see this is a thing you get with a live one if it was
0: recorded we'd edit that bit out but um we, we, we can't we, we, we there is an element of doubt sometimes um and what else is there in there uh, to look out for at this time of year for uh, for people who are looking you know just in your garden uh, looking looking skywards of course what, what what's the what's the things to look out for and uh, any planets we can see at the moment too
1: there is, yeah, the planets are visible towards the end uh, sorry before dusk. Um just as it's getting to dusk we've got Venus over on the on the western horizon, and then we've got Jupiter and a bit of Saturn still kicking around as well. So you can look at those um just before uh just after sunset, sorry. Um and there is a couple of other planets up, but you're gonna need a telescope in order to be able to see those. You've got Uranus, you've got Neptune, um, but definitely need a telescope for those ones
0: fantastic okay so those are the ones to, uh, to to look out for uh of course wrap up warm because it is uh, the chilliest time of year really for doing a bit of stargazing but some beautiful clear skies as well and i've had a few pings too of, of the uh, possible possibility of aurora have we have we had any any confirmed sightings over the last few <laughs> weeks or so because uh, my my app that uh, we're advised it to, to have sort of keeps suggesting that it might there might be half a chance
1: yeah, so there was actually there was a ping. I think was it yesterday? Yeah, um, yeah. and it, yeah, it was it was a problem with the magnetometer, so it wasn't really <laughs> right. a ping. uh it was, just, it was probably someone mowing the lawn again. That's what happened the last time. So, was <laughs> <What's> that right? <laughs> yeah, it was once triggered by a, a lawn mower at some point in the, in the past. So maybe it was just that. Again. Although I can't imagine anybody was mowing the lawn at this time of the year.
0: Well, you yeah. never know. You never know. There's always probably somebody.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, one of
0: the regular features, if you've not listened to our monthly podcast, um, Dan Pye, uh, Director of Astronomy, likes to give you a little challenge, so something uh, a little different to look out for in the night sky, maybe slightly more advanced, maybe you've got a telescope or a decent pair of binoculars and you want to head deeper into the night sky, in our feature, Pie in the Sky. Oh, uh, look at sun! So, <laughs> Dan, give us something that's going to stretch us a bit um, over over the, the next few weeks, something, you know, over the, over those Christmas days where you've got your, your holiday and uh, you're off work and you've got a nice clear sky, one of those quiet days between Christmas and new year that nobody knows what to do with what should they be looking for
1: i'm going to give you a star you know this is a can i just add at this point actually usually when we're recording the podcast this is me scrabbling around to try and find an object because i haven't pre-planned <laughs> but uh, knowing tonight was live i have pre-planned so uh, yes a christmas star we'll go with that um and this particular christmas star is my well it's my favorite star actually I'll, let you into that secret. Um, It is uh, called Iota Cancri, or its Hipparchus catalogue number is HIP43103, which is the only Hipparchus catalogue numbered star that I remember. (laughs) Um, But it's a beautiful star because it's not, when you look at it, it's not one star. It's in fact. Two stars, two is a binary system, Um, a little orangey, well, it's a yellowy kind of coloured star and a, a little blue star, which are orbiting around each other. And it looks incredible through a telescope. Really, really nice. One of the nicest binary systems I think you can find. And to locate it, you need to find the constellation of Cancer, which is quite a difficult one to see from a light polluted area, actually. But if you get somewhere a little bit darker or you've got a moonless night, then if you locate Cancer you'll be able to uh, spot this little star just at the very top of the constellation you need to be out late at night as well because of course cancer is uh, rising much later in the night but um, if you're out during the night HIP 43103 that's where you want to go to beautiful
0: HIP43103 and uh, put that catalogue code in Argos and uh, you probably get an ironing board. But um, <laughs> something, to, something to look out for uh, over the, the coming weeks or so. That's this month's Pie in the Sky. Let us know how you get on. And uh, right now, we're getting ready to speak to our main guest in this month's episode, Dr. Olivia Jones. Dr Olivia Jones is uh, of the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh and uh, is an expert on the James Webb Telescope, which launches hopefully soon. And when it does, it's going to bring us a whole new view of the universe. She's also an STFC Webb Fellow at the UK Astronomy Technology Centre at the uh, Royal Observatory in Edinburgh and um, previously has worked at uh, institutions such as Jodrell Bank and so knows lots about um, uh, the James Webb Telescope, clearly, and uh, and much more besides. And she's going to tell us all about it Cause I'm, I'm going to show you a picture of the James Webb Telescope first of all because it's an impressive bit of kit. Um, there it is. Um, Look at it, that. It looks like properly something out of Star Wars, that doesn't it? Um, and, With uh, its
1: bakelite foil. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh, now this is this is going to change our lives over the next however many years. And, and Dr. Olivia Jones is going to tell us more about this because um, when this goes up, it's going to see into parts of the the universe that currently sat here right now we don't even know exist. And it's going to answer um, many questions, and probably um, probably create many questions as well. And and the thing about this is that quite a lot of research and and work has gone on here in the northeast um, uh, to, to to help out with this. And uh, Durham University have certainly um, contributed some of their thoughts on on um, the optics that are aboard this that are going to bring us this view. Um, Dr. Olivia, welcome to the Kielder Observatory podcast, and. Uh, Start by telling us about the James Webb Telescope. It's long overdue. It should be in space already. Um, hopefully, it will be going into space shortly. Um, firstly, explain the delay because um, I think obviously COVID is is probably one part of that. But um, what's the rest?
2: Ah, oh, well, thanks for the easy question to start off. Um, <laughs> hello, everyone. Um, uh, James Webb Space Telescope is a fantastic, amazing piece of technological um, astronomy hardware. Um, and it's going to revolution our view of the universe. Um, it's been long awaited. Um, I've been working on it for about eight or nine years now, uh, and I've been wanting it to launch for, for quite a while. Um, I, I don't know if you fully appreciated from that picture just how big Webb is. Its um, mirror is around six and a half meters in size, and the silver bit is the sun shield, and that's about the size of a tennis court. So we're looking at an absolutely humongous uh, telescope that's being launched into space. And one of the main challenges of launching one of these telescopes is just how do you fit a a telescope bigger than about about the size of a tennis court um, plus the mirror into a rocket, which is four and a half metres across? (laughs) And (laughs) how do do you do that?
0: (laughs) How do you do that?
2: You have to fold it all up. And so one of the reasons why um, Web has taken so long to develop is its technologies need to be from concepts to actually, we've developed a lot of, of technology along the way um, to making it uh, launch. And not only that, it's not going to be launched to around the orbiting the Earth. We're going to be at a place called L2, which is a stable orbit a million miles away. And so, at that point, it's great for um, telescopes like Webb, because that observes in the infrared, uh, not an optical wavelength, because it's further away from the sun. But you have to make sure you get it right. And so, a lot of what we've been doing with Webb over the years is shaking it, rattling it, rolling it, doing everything we can to make it as robust as possible um, for its uh, mission, which will be starting on the 22nd of December, hopefully.
0: Fingers crossed
2: so that goes in way to explain the delays um it's we've tested it thoroughly and tested it again and tested it again
0: and and give us a, a comparison because obviously people will be familiar with Hubble if, if they haven't seen it they'll have heard of it because it's been around so so um, long but what what is the what is the upgrade here from Hubble to the James Webb
2: okay uh, one of the major there's two major major differences one is the size of the mirror. Hubble's mirror is around two and a half metres in diameter. It's about the size of uh, a double-decker bus, um, which is great. Um, But that means you you don't have as much collecting area compared to Webb's mirror, which is going to be six and a half metres in size. The bigger the mirror, uh, the better you can see. And so new discoveries are always found. Uh, The other main difference is that Webb will not be operating at exactly the same wavelengths that Hubble operates. Hubble works at the ultraviolet, the optical and a little bit of the infrared, whereas Webb uh, will operate at some wavelengths where Hubble operates, but it'll operate at slightly longer wavelengths. Um, So it'll see a bit of the cooler universe than what Hubble will see. Um, So the areas where it does overlap, Webb is significantly more powerful because it's got a bigger, um, bigger mirror. But those longer wavelengths let it see further away and hopefully it was designed to see the first light in the universe.
0: Yeah, that's one of the many things that people are excited about, isn't it? Seeing the, being able to see the first light, which is absolutely incredible considering how old the universe is that we might still get these echoes of the, of the Big Bang and, and, and see them. What are the other things that you're excited about, particularly if in the long term that you're hoping it's going, to, it's going to bring?
2: So there's four main science themes of Webb. There's the very first light in the universe, which will be around 200 million years after the Big Bang, is where we're hoping to get to. Um, so not quite the Big Bang, you won't be able to see stars, because stars didn't exist then. Uh, but 200 million years after the Big Bang is what we want to see. We want to then also look at how galaxies assemble. Um, we don't actually know how galaxies like the Milky Way um, changed over cosmic time. Uh, I mean, lots of galaxies crash into each other. They collide. There's lots of stuff going on. So you want to learn about how galaxies are, are made. Did uh, they form as like little bits and then collide together and get bigger and bigger? Or were they just big? Uh, we don't know that as a question. In uh, a similar theme, uh, when the universe was first born, there was hydrogen, helium, and a little bit of lithium in terms of the elements. Um, so all the gold you see around you, if you've got a ring on, you've got some jewellery, all of that was made by the stars. Uh, all the carbon, the oxygen, everything. And so as the chemical evolution of the universe is something where Webb would be very powerful. Um, the other areas where Webb is going to look at is the beginning and ends of a star's life. Um, Personally, I'm involved in lots of programmes to do with how stars are being born and how stars die. And then the other final science theme of Webb is looking at the atmospheres of exoplanets. So these are planets orbiting uh, nearby stars uh, and hopefully we'll be able to see what sort of chemical signatures their atmospheres have. Do they have methane? Do they have carbon monoxide? Do they have lots of... Um, gases, and hopefully that will tell you much then about life-bearing planets. That would be an ideal, uh, an ideal case scenario, is learning about those. So there's lots of exciting science that's going to be happening across from the very early stages of the universe to right in our solar neighbourhood.
1: All I heard was aliens. Sorry. Olivia.
2: <laughs> no aliens. <laughs> yeah, uh, aliens. <laughs> Definitely aliens. No,
3: that's what I'm most excited for, to be honest, yes. uh, what it's able, not necessarily the alien side of things, uh, but, uh, just, but just being able to learn about other planets and other stars, learn learn about the atmospheres uh, and maybe finding aliens, just a little bit of aliens, you know, uh, <laughs> finding the biosignatures. <laughs>
1: I'd heard that the this the, the sensitivity of the James Webb Space Telescope can see the heat signature of a bee at the distance of the moon. Is that is that a confirmed fact is it? Because I've always, I've quoted that and always wondered actually am I quoting nonsense?
2: <laughs> I've heard something very very similar. Webb uh, in the infrared is absolutely mind-blowing. The technology involved to do this is is stunning. Um and the great thing about this compared to any other telescopes that operated in the infrared before it doesn't have any coolants involved um previously that's what limited the lifetime of other missions is it need, you need to be really cold if you were observing in the infrared because that's the heat radiation uh, so web is extremely sensitive to anything you see around you so you have to get really really close to where atoms don't move at all Uh, And Webb does this in a very clever way with the sun shield of the radiation bouncing out of each layer. And then the mid-infrared instrument, which is the one that um, is led at the UK Astronomy Technology Centre and then has a massive UK involvement, um, is actually then cooled even further than the rest of the instruments on Webb. So yes, you probably could see a a bee on the moon. The sensitivity of this telescope is amazing. So, yeah, you can can say that to all outreach talks, wherever onwards you can.
0: A bee on the moon. Um, Ellie, what what would you like to um, know about the, the James Webb Telescope?
4: Well, I mean, specifically with the mid-infrared instrument, I was just wondering, you know, what is that? What do you hope to learn with that? Because presumably you're not going to be looking at bees on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> it,
2: be, you know, well, it will answer your alien question. Because if be on the moon, I want to know about it.
0: That would be, be a great level of effort to go to just to look for bees on the moon, wouldn't it? But...
1: Moon honey. That sounds like a brilliant product line. Yeah. <laughs> Why
2: not? Um, so yeah, the mid-infrared instrument is the one that operates at the longest um, wavelengths on the web. There's four instruments, three of which operate at sh- slightly shorter wavelengths than the one, uh, the mid-infrared instrument, MIRI, which operates at the longer wavelengths. And that's really good for looking at the cold objects, so the, the stars that are being born, the stars that are dying, um, the, the really redshifted um, galaxies. And by redshift, so... I don't know if you hear sirens of police cars or ambulances. It's that wavelength changes as you get close to you. That's a similar effect you see across the universe. And so the very early galaxies are red-shifted so far into the mid-infrared, that's where we should pick them up. So that's where we hope to detect the first light. Um, so, yeah, and and also um, planets forming around stars. That's a, a perfect area for um, uh, the mid-infrared instruments. So that what you get then is like an ice skater spinning around, and that forms a disk. I don't know if you ever tried tried spinning around fast and then moving your arms together and then further apart. It's lots of fun. Um, But a similar happen things when stars are born and they form this planet forming disk around a star uh, and hopefully you'll be able to observe that around many systems nearby Um, and that that would be excellent science and hopefully science will be doing early on as well.
4: That'd be cool. That'd be so cool to see actually.
0: And what's the actual duration of this mission then, the, the intended duration? Because Hubble has been in, the, in space now for, for a very long time. And what's the life expectancy of, of the James Webb Telescope, really?
2: Yeah, Hubble has been absolutely amazing. <clears throat> How long it's this last? About 30 years, which is stunningly awesome, given that it was meant to have a short, quite a short mission lifetime. Um, so Webb is meant to last at a minimum of five years. And then with it, with about 10 years is what we're really aiming for. Though the people who, who run uh, Hubble uh, are also going to be running Webb. And so they're going to be very careful about the lifetime. And so I expect it to hopefully last much longer than the 10 years. But 10 years is what we're aiming for. Uh, what limits that lifetime is how much fuel it will take to get to its, its position in after launch. Um, if we need to do a course correction and burn the fuel up, um, that will take away lifetime of uh, the telescope. Uh, so I'm quite nervous for the for the first month after launch, as it's travelling. The telescope is travelling and folding um, to its its L2 place, um, <clears> the, <throat> the one million miles away. Um, that that will actually determine the lifetime mostly of Webb. And because Webb is big, any observations you move around the sky require fuel. And so that eventually, when Webb can't move, that that's the end of the lifetime when you can't change it. It has a lot of momentum. It's like a big giant truck that you're trying to drive with limited fuel, and eventually <laughs> you'll run out.
0: With uh, any space mission, uh, obviously the very nervous time is when it comes to the real event, and and this telescope has to unfurl quite a lot um, to, to to get to its uh, full potential. Um, we've seen like Mars missions, obviously Moon missions, and. You don't really know it's going to work until that actual moment, and hugely nervous time. What preparations have you done, and what what practice have you uh, done to, to sort of rehearse for this as, as as best as possible for this for this big moment of hoping it all goes smoothly?
2: Well, for my nerves, I've watched a lot of football penalty shootouts, um, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but but for the telescope itself. Um, We've done a lot of shaking. We've put it in cryo cool, uh, coolers. So we've cooled it down a lot. Um, we've used a lot of the testing chambers that they actually use for the Apollo missions because they're the only things that are big enough to hold web. It is a really, really big telescope. Uh, just in case that hasn't been quite been conveyed, it's big. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of cooling and warming up. There's been a lot of um, unfolding the mirror. Because um, all the those side bits, the, the three hexagonals on either side are folded away. And that big secondary mirror that, that has the three triangular structures in front is all folded up as well. If you can ever see any pictures of this, it's a stunning um, piece of engineering and compact. Uh, so that that unfolding mechanism has been tested God knows how many times, a lot. Uh, the unfolding of the sun shield has happened about three or four times. Uh, we try not to do that too much um, because we definitely do not want that. That is a very key for web to work. Um, so. There is 30 days um, and there's about 300 movements of web that has to take place in that 30 days. Um, and in principle, if you launch something to space, you want to have as less things that move as possible. So this is very nerve wracking, um, seeing all the, all these things have to work and unfold. And probably in our lifetime, we won't see a, um, another telescope this big launch, we'll just you know, how technologically complex it is. And yeah, it, it's slightly terrifying that all these have to happen. So launch is exciting, um, and that's the first thing that should hopefully go very well. Um, but then, yeah, there's 30 days where all these movements are happening, uh, the, the sunshield unfolding, all the origami uh, movements. We've, we've studied this extensively. We've tested it extensively. But if you can imagine, all those uh, layers are all folded up and compacted together and folded up next to the, the mirror. That, that's a lot of movements that have to happen. And the very first thing that has to happen is the sun uh, solar panels have to come out because it's running on battery uh, until that happens. And so uh, the rest of the movements can't happen until we we get off battery power um, as well. So it's exciting. We won't see this happening, but we'll be studying this from all the telemetry detail as it moves away from us.
0: And what was the thinking behind the sort of hexagonal, um, you know, the mirror? What what was the design thinking behind that? Because it sort of reminds me of the Blockbusters board. (laughs) <laughs> it's, uh, I'm sure it is, it's more complex yeah.
2: than that. <laughs> uh well no one's asking Bob for any letters at all think this time. Good. Um <laughs> it's yeah um most telescopes when you reach a certain size uh, even ground based ones start to become made of hexagons. Um if they don't you can no longer really make a mirror that well uh, after you've hit because uh, you, the, the surface of these tele, these mirrors need to be absolutely polished to perfection. Here's another stat for you a bit like the B1. Uh, if you put the mirror surface, you made it the size of France, uh, you would only have a very, very small, and I mean very small, little incline in the gradient of just how flat it was. You'd still, it'd be, the size of France, you, know, you wouldn't have even you know, have a little mini hill. It would be more or less completely smooth, which is stunning. Um, I think probably even like the, the hill on the Champs-Élysées, it's less than that, how finely flat those, those mirrors are polished wow. to. Yeah. Uh, which... Yeah, blew my mind. It just it has to be engineered and, and polished to perfection. So you can't do that with one ginormous mirror uh, and, I don't, and you definitely couldn't get that into a spacecraft. Um, and what this allows for hexagons, you can align them all individually. Um, so each one of them has got little motors and when, it, when we're in space, we'll be pointing at a star, some very bright stars to start off with, and we'll be aligning all the mirrors to make our telescope go in focus. So this this is not a telescope that will need glasses; it we will focus it on the stars themselves by aligning each mirror perfectly.
0: Fantastic. Well, hopefully it all <laughs> unfurls in uh, in the right order, and um, it could make for a very. What when, when when how long after the launch would you be talking about this process of it all folding out and the origami happening in space?
2: It starts off hours yeah. after launch. It takes right. 30 minutes to get up out of the atmosphere and all the separation to occur. And then the unfolding starts within yeah, within a few hours. Antennas, the sun, uh, the solar panels. Um, there is a fantastic video um, showing this. It's slightly terrifying because it used to be played on loop in the tea room. Um, uh, <laughs> and given how, how I know these have to work perfectly, um, it's, it's, it's marvellous and wonderful, but... A little bit scary for people who are heavily involved in this mission. Um, And it shows the key stages of where in the orbit it is and moving away from us uh, and the the stages that need to unfold at each day. So I'll advise people to try and check that out.
0: So it could make for a fairly nervy Christmas for you if it does go up on the 22nd of December then?
2: Uh, Yes. Um, (laughs) At one point, um, yeah, I was scheduled to be in mission control for Christmas Day, but luckily that's changed. Um, I, but several of my colleagues are there, studying, making sure that each of these bits happen in time, and, and it's all being checked out and working correctly as we go. It's it's all hands on deck um, from just before lunch.
0: Wow, that would be a way to spend Christmas, wouldn't it? In mission control, but uh, yeah, not one that you'd want to be uh, enjoying a, a full turkey dinner or during. I wouldn't imagine, but um, well, all the best with it, and, and fingers crossed it does all go ahead on the uh, on the 22nd of December. If it doesn't happen, then what's the what's the next launch date? Do you know?
2: Uh, the next launch date will be the twenty third of December. It oh, always right. happens around um twenty past twelve. um so lunchtime, time that, that's the the optimal launch window for French Guyana. Uh, so if it if for some reason it's not the twenty second, it'll be the the twenty third and it will just carry on uh, then. so it should it should be before Christmas um and I expect it to be the twenty second completely. Okay. Uh, the, the the telescopes being moved there on being put on the rocket rocket as we speak.
0: Wow. Okay, then. So, it could be good for going. Uh, what? Just a couple of weeks' time. Um, fantastic. So, if anybody else got any uh, any any questions for uh, Doctor Olivia before we move on to ask an astronomer, but there are some questions for you, uh, Olivia, about the uh, the James Webb Telescope coming up. I've seen. So, um, don't go far. But um, Adam, do you have any uh, anything or?
3: Uh, yeah, I do. Um, so, uh, obviously, you're talking about the mirror and how absolutely impressive it is. Um, but uh, when you see the photos of it, you can obviously see that it's a lovely gold colour as well. Uh, I, I believe it's some sort of... laugh, oh, thank you for the picture yeah. there to help illustrate. Uh, yeah, so uh, is that, is, I, I think it's like a gold... Is it a gold beryllium sort of alloy? Um, uh, or something sorry. along those lines?
2: <laughs> okay, um, there's about six or seven equivalent uh, wedding rings worth of gold on that mirror it's a really really thin layer of gold on the top wow. uh, so yeah not, not many wedding rings uh, needed but a few um probably less than less than 10 so you can fit them all on your hand if you wanted to <laughs> and then the actually underneath is beryllium um and so beryllium is very very stable at cold temperatures and that's why so it's light there's two key things the light Uh, and it's stable as you get to much cooler temperatures. And that's what you need if you're going to be observing and cooling the telescope down uh, to close to zero, as absolutely zero temperature as possible. Um, So each mirror segment weighs about uh, 20 kilograms plus 20 kilograms of electronics. So they're big. Those mirrors are are big, but they're actually um, very light as well. So, yeah, mostly beryllium uh, mined in Utah, and then a little very thin layer of gold on
3: red. Wow that's incredible. I didn't realize there was so little uh, gold uh, on the top there but I mean I guess it just makes sense because you need it for that, the reflective side don't you? Uh, and then um well wow, awesome. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Top stuff. Okay, well we'll go through some um, some questions now because um on our ask an astronomer section um we we well we've been asking you to 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 give your questions and uh, we can move on to to some of those right now um and there's the, i think there's something for everyone here um adam you 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 are the the um education lead and uh, we have a, a question from one of our younger viewers um this is seb age seven who asks how fast are meteors
3: that's a fantastic question um so they're going really really quick uh so uh, it, it it does depend on sort of which direction they're coming from uh but they can be traveling 10 20 maybe 30 miles a second so they're going incredibly incredibly quickly uh, and you definitely wouldn't want to get hit by one to say the least uh but that's actually that's a really good question as well because we are coming up to a um uh, the Geminids meteor shower, just in a few days, in fact. Uh, it's going to be peaking Monday night, early hours, uh, Tuesday morning. And it's going to be absolutely fantastic. We can see up to 100 meteors an hour. Uh, but yeah, so they'll go incredibly, incredibly quick. And if you go outside Monday night, fingers crossed for clear skies, uh, you might be able to see plenty of them up in this nighttime sky.
0: Okay. So uh, there you go, Seb. And uh, that's good news that you might be able to see some uh, some some meteors uh very soon by the way if you want to ask a question to one of our astronomers uh please do um all you need to do is just type in the um, in the comments at the bottom um of this post of this um, live feed and um and the, the questions will come straight through to us here uh next one from richard lewis has had visited the obsea in, in august it was raining ah we've we've all been there um stayed in keelda for a week and eventually it cleared in beautiful skies that is something but we do have now. We mentioned earlier the uh, the, the new radio telescope, um, which certainly gives you now the opportunity to to do some observations, even if even if the weather does come in, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, we can, there's loads of things that we can, uh, we can point our radio antenna to. I, I must kind of um, set an expectation on that, though. It, take, it takes a very long time to take an image with this particular piece of kit. Um, <laughs> if we were taking a, 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 any kind of image that we take, it's not a conventional image, so it's not something that is invisible light. Of course, this is radio frequencies, they're that, that non-visible light, <laughs> um, and the resolution of it is really, really, really bad. So uh, talking in like one degree per pixel, which is quite a lot of sky. That's like double double the width of the full moon um, per pixel. And, and we might only do something that's 10 pixels by 10 pixels and that can take 45 minutes to do. So essentially what we might get is a, a lovely colourful splodge but that lovely colorful splodge could be radio signals which we've picked up from something that's a couple of hundred million light years away um so it's it's an interesting splodge <laughs> and nevertheless still light in in the same sense as well
0: and you also get detail of um you know you can look at get analyzed gases and and obviously you mentioned radio frequencies and and much more as well so it's not just not just about what you can see it's about what you can here and, uh, and 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 almost taste perhaps in space if uh, if that's the right I phrase know. I'm At not least, sure it we, is. Can we
4: taste in space? Well,
0: we... <laughs> um, yeah. I've um, never
4: you. tried it. <laughs> hey, certainly never tried it. Um, I I would, you know, if I was given the opportunity. I,
0: w- I would. Um, I would always say, don't knock it till you've tried it. Well, right. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh man on the tune says um when will the galactic center of the milky way be visible from Kielda next year? It's a good question because it's a great time for uh well for for astronomers but also astrophotographers of course it makes for a great photo doesn't it?
1: Yeah it does and I'm going to shatter everyone's dreams with that and say unfortunately it's not really um it's uh, it's slightly below the horizon for us at Kielda um certainly out of our view um at uh, the time of the year when it would normally be visible a good time of the year to see the milky way is between june and september but for us in the northern hemisphere at 55 degrees north um we experience our lighter nights during that period of time as well so we do have a, a very narrow window of opportunity to just graze the top of the 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 center of our galaxy um, at the, uh, during June and then towards the back end of August into September, um, but we don't get the true good, really substantial central section that you would get if you were to go somewhere like uh, Tenerife, for example. Then it would be at a really good observable distance above your head there.
0: Okay, but uh, yeah, you still you still do get a decent view of it, I suppose, don't you? With the, with the dark sky, it's just as you say. You've you've Absolutely. been to. I mean, you've yeah. been to. Uh it Tenerife you went you've got a great photo of it haven't you and it and that was that was down there obviously the further down south you are the better the better the view yeah yeah um, if you would like to uh, ask a question of our astronomers, by the way, anything to do with space whatsoever, my, I mean, I asked Dan we, we, when I had a little rehearsal, I said, why are there no square planets? Just as just as something as a, a ridiculous question, yeah. I got a full in-depth answer. So there's no silly questions. I think questions. it was one word. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was a long <laughs> word. Uh, <Yeah. laughs> and it impressed me. So um, yeah. any question at all about space, the night sky, the universe? um whatever um just in the comments just just uh, type us a message and uh, and hit send and we'll we'll work our way down to it um here's one for um astro photographer fans um looking to buy my first astro cam should i go color or mono it can be quite confusing uh, can you help richard out
3: it is definitely really really confusing um i would probably recommend going colour to start off with, especially if you are in the UK uh, because if you wanted to get a pretty colour image and you've got a um, monochromatic one uh, then you're going to need to have three times the observations because you need to take photos of a red filter a blue filter a green filter and combine them all together so you kind of need three times the amount of clear skies essentially uh so if it's your first camera then a color camera is probably going to be the best uh best place to start with that regard uh but either way it is going to be a bit confusing when it comes to uh playing around with the software and depending on what kind of camera you do get uh often these kind of cameras they'll um uh, they uh, the images uh, the, the, the pixels are sort of all combined together when they come through the uh, image so you have to use software to uh, what's called over it and combine it all together to get it all colored. Um, but I'd recommend color for your first one at least kind of uh, dip your toes in and then once you once you become uh, more used to it go for the mono get some filters out and, or you'll get some beautiful results.
0: Okay, so there's your uh, advice there from Adam. I hope that helps, Richard. If you would like a question answering from one of our astronomers at Kielder Observatory or you've got any questions about the James Webb Telescope, then please um, just uh, drop us a little comment and uh, we can answer that for you because uh, we've got um, three astronomers, including uh, Director of Astronomy Dan Pye. We've got uh, Ellie MacDonald and Adam Shaw with us and Dr. Olivia Jones, who is uh, somewhat an expert of the um, James Webb Telescope. And uh, here is a question for you on that front says um from bill hadley what can we expect of the new telescope in terms of visual representations like photos similar sort of visuals to hubble or more scientific what, what are the image is going to look like do you think
2: they are going to be absolutely stunning um they are going to be a comparable or maybe slightly better than hubble depending on the wavelength we're operating at so the shorter wavelength ones in particular are going to knock our socks off um they are, yeah, they're going to be comparable to Hubble at least. And combined, the Hubble and JWST um, images combined, I cannot wait to see. Uh, when I was picking some of my targets for Webb and I had a choice and everything all being equal, I picked the, the prettier galaxies um, because I knew they were going to absolutely produce some stunning images. So I hope to see many of my, my stuff in calendars in the, in the not-too-distant future made by NASA. The, the, the images are going to be amazing. Um, because we're going to have that very high resolution view across a very long wavelength range, um, and that that will give us we'll be able to see very different things, and the things that you definitely can't see with Hubble, uh, like dust that are all dark, you'll see lit up in the infrared at that high resolution view that Hubble produces. So yeah, it should be very similar. They'll all be scientific as well, um, but it'll be beautiful, and I cannot wait to see the first images uh, produced. I'm very excited by this.
0: There you go, Bill, it's going to knock your socks off, the official words <laughs>
1: <laughs> on behalf of the James just, Webb Telescope mission there.
0: Just
2: to add
1: to that question there, uh, Olivia, what's the field of view of uh, of the James Webb Space Telescope?
2: It depends on which instrument. There's four instruments, but it's much smaller than Hubble. Um, so you won't be getting... There's amazing maps of uh, nearby galaxies, for instance, that have taken a long time to do, um, but the field of view for Webb is much smaller. So you'll really be targeting specific things rather than all sky or big area mapping. What you will get is one of the images to really look out for, one of the early ones, will be the web ultra deep field. So like the Hubble deep field where you may have seen where all the galaxies are, the the web view of that should be absolutely amazing because we're going to point at the same area of sky. But because of the sensitivity of web, we'll see many, many more galaxies and also at this very high resolution Christmas. So I cannot wait to see um, that image being released. I'm, I'm not a cosmologist. I don't work on that science side, but that, that image I'm looking forward to. I've seen simulated versions compared to Hubble um, and they are stunning. So I'm very much looking forward to the real thing when that comes down and that should be mid uh, next year or so. So
1: That's exciting
3: um, That's going to be so exciting
4: Yeah, something else I wanted to sort of add on to that question, not to add on to an (laughs) add-on but you mentioned dust and I know that a lot of your research has been to do with dust and presumably that's not like the same type of dust that I have in my house, I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about cosmic dust and what it is and why it's interesting and why you study it and what James Webb can tell us about it
2: Okay, yes, I am a massive proponent of space dust. Space dust is awesome. It's not quite the dust you'll see in your house, though um, possibly not too far off what you might find on a beach. Um, So space dust is very, very, very tiny particles. So you need to think about these these as small, uh, wispy wispy particles of smoke. So some of this dust is carbon, and very basically think of fine smoke particles surrounding some stars. Um, Some of this is sand. So the sand you got on your beach, you'll find around dying stars a lot as well and between uh, the interstellar medium, the bit between stars, Um, there's that. There's tiny little particles of uh, diamond uh, there's ten little particles of sapphire. There's ten little particles of rubies. There's ten little particles of, of olivine. So the olivine beach in Hawaii, I really want to go there. That sand, that type of sand, is produced around dying stars, and what I did a lot of my research on. And I really want to go to Hawaii to see that, see the sand. Um, and that's what we mean by by dust in space. I think of it as really, really tiny particles um, of mostly things like sand and soot. Uh, and PAHs, which is polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or burnt toast. Uh, in, in other words, that the burnt toast cell, you see some very green images, potentially with Webb, that green is, is your burnt toast smell of the universe. Um, so lots of carbons. And that's a, that's about star formation. If you see lots of that, that means a, little, a lot of stars are being born in your uh, field. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, I can talk about space dust for a very, very long time. You probably don't want me to. Um, <laughs> Uh, like, I'm it's very about in
4: dust. itself,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the episode on dust and the smell of burnt toast. That's where we should oh, do a right. follow. up <laughs> Well,
0: it was uh, Bill that started this question off, and Bill's been back in touch simply to say, "Nice cat." There um, so... <laughs> you go, Ellie. Um...
4: Yeah, that was um, that was Pippin, I believe. Um, there's Mary and Pippin. They both look the same, but you'll see them wandering around. But yeah, okay.
0: everybody likes a cat um jacob has been in touch with us thanks for your question jacob are there any planets slash moons within the milky way that have the same atmospheric conditions as earth to support human life who wants to take that one on
3: (laughs) i'll go for that one um so i mean the the ultimate answer is Maybe <laughs> uh, the James Webb Space Telescope will hopefully be able to find us that answer uh, more definitively. There are plenty of pla- plenty of exoplanets that we have found that we have discovered um, that we think might be similar to Earth. So they might be a similar size, a similar mass, a similar distance, uh, or a- an appropriate distance from their planet where liquid water could exist on the surface uh, for the kind of exact same atmospheric conditions. Well, that's something that's really exciting. because. Our atmosphere, let's say the oxygen in our atmosphere, for example, we've got absolutely loads of that, but uh, that's primarily coming and being replenished by life sources, things on Earth doing photosynthesis. So, if we do find, and this is always thing about earlier on, but if we do find planets around other stars with lots of oxygen in their atmospheres, then that's one of the things that could be key and uh, could suggest there might be life there. Uh, so, they could support human life, but it could also be supporting other life in the first uh, already so fingers crossed we'll find something like that
0: yeah because that's the big thing isn't it people think of human life but and and if you've not listened to um any of our previous um, episodes on the keldre Observatory podcast, and there's no reason why you would um, but um the very first episode we did, if you're gonna go back through them um on on um Apple podcasts or Spotify and you search for Kielre Observatory, the very first episode we did was with um Professor Wallace Arthur who is um an expert on all of this kind of stuff, and some of the things that he says there just are mind boggling in the fact that he said that almost certainly other life knows about us he's absolutely adamant that that that, you know that there is life out there uh, that's more advanced than us that is aware of us and you know we're fairly primitive as as far as uh, some corners of the universe go and and perhaps the james webb telescope he's excited for as well because that might finally give him some answers on on his hunch um but at the moment we're looking at a, a, a a microbe would be um a massive discovery because so far we've not found that yet Anywhere, so um, humans doing their shopping in in a, in a Tesco in a, in a in a deep, far-flung part of the universe would be it would be quite a revelation at this moment in time. But um, but yeah, the James Webb Telescope could. Um, I don't know what 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 would be the result on that. When what how would we find evidence? Do you think of life, um, Olivia, um, with the James Webb Telescope? Because obviously we need. We've obviously got probes on Mars at the moment, digging down deep to see if they can find anything that might suggest that there's anything there. But with the James Webb telescope, obviously we can see a bee on the moon. But what will be the goal um, deeper into the universe?
2: So a lot of the power of Webb is through not just the imaging, but the the spectrographs. There's a lot of spectrographs, and that's where you break light into very small components and look for chemical signatures. And so around the atmosphere of the Earth, for instance, there's lots of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and water vapor. Um, What we're spending a lot of time on, especially early on, is looking at several nearby exoplanets and looking for things like the carbon dioxide levels, the methane levels. Methane in particular uh, would indicate the presence of bacteria and microbes on a planet. If you see potential signatures like that, um, you know there'll be alien life on on a planet. Potentially, 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 <laughs> I'm going to say many caveats, but looking for methane, which is in the infrared with the spectrographs would be um, a stunning result. Um, yeah, if you see carbon dioxide, that would suggest potentially volcanic activity. Um, water vapour would suggest it's habitable. Um, and they're all things that we could pick up in the infrared where Webb will operate. There's ozone and stuff, but they're at shorter wavelengths. So they're slightly outside the range that, that Webb would look at. Um but, yeah, methane would be a big one to be looking for.
0: Okay, signs of methane, carbon dioxide and, uh, and water, vapour, uh, are all the things that we're looking for and, and maybe we will find. Um, here's a question from Paul. Um, again, for you, Dr. Olivia, if all goes to plan, how long are, are we looking at to get the first pictures from the new telescope back to Earth?
2: Okay, um, it will take about six months. Um, so what you first have to do is, is get it to its uh, point in space, So that's one month. Um, Then the sort of commissioning and aligning all the the mirrors, that's another chunk of time. Um, And then for all the instruments to be working, the one the the mid-infrared instrument, needs to cool down as well. So about four months in before that cool down has been completed, and then we can start calibrating the, uh, the telescopes, making sure we've all tuned them right, everything is working correctly. And then about after launch, there's going to be a massive release of the first images of which... I really want to know what they are, and they're absolutely top secret. So I know a person who knows a person who knows what's going to be taken first, but I don't know what that's going to be, and I won't find out until the same time as everyone else. And at that point, all that public is also uh, all that data is going to be released to the scientific community and the public at the same time. So if you wanted to, you could download that on the day that everyone becomes knowing what those first images and spectra will be um yeah it's not just imaging spectra is a very very big component of what we'll do very powerful
0: okay so that's gonna be summertime like june july kind of time then isn't it when we're going to get that day um let's get another question then from paul warren who says hi how's comet leonard looking at the moment uh what are the chances it'll be a naked eye visible comet over the coming weeks now we did touch on this earlier but i'm not sure we answered necessarily all of that um comet leonard then um it, we did mention it at the start it's it's uh Around over the weeks. There are there any periods where it gets brighter and its optimum time, do we know?
1: Yeah, tomorrow morning is uh, is gonna be its brightest. Um so tomorrow morning just before the sun comes up, that's when uh, when it's gonna be at its bright actually is oh. in the next couple of days actually. Over the next couple of days is is its brightest. Then it'll start to get progressively dimmer. Um, as the uh, as the month goes on, as it makes its way away from us. And what's interesting about Comet Leonard is the fact that it's been travelling towards our sun for about 35,000 years. It's come from very far reaches of our solar system, and this, uh, this object is now going to be ejected away from our solar system and potentially head off and never come back again. So this is a total... Uh, once in a lifetime, even once in a in a, in an eternity kind of visit from this comet, it may even become an interstellar piece of something that drifts on to find another solar system that some other humans gaze up at and go, "Oh, look at that! Isn't that nice?" And then it smashes into their planet. Oh, <laughs> so that's, that's what a, a crushing I'm end joking, to that's that story, what... <laughs> isn't it?
0: <laughs> but NASA have um, have launched a mission, haven't they, recently to to. Um... A, a practice dealing with a with with um, an asteroid, like the sort of real life practice for for that Armageddon situation, haven't they? That they're they're, they're
1: working on at the moment. Yeah, they have. They're going to go and punch it, uh, <laughs> yeah, or nudge it, um, only very gently nudge it. It's an interesting. Uh, uh... Um, an interesting scenario that's taking place actually because the the particular asteroid is really interesting in itself because it has a little moon and it's the moon that it's going to go and nudge and that's going to be sufficient enough to hopefully change its course only very marginally and if we know that we Do that, and we can manipulate that, then it can help us prevent any further collisions with other pieces of space debris um, in the future, as well as or or asteroids such as this. Anything, but got anybody anybody got anything they want to add to that?
3: I mean, I I think it's worth uh, mentioning the name of the mission. Uh, so uh, it's it's called DART or Double Asteroid Redirection yes. Test, uh, and uh, if you're f- I mean familiar with space astronomy, uh, we love our uh, our acronym. Uh, so DART, that's pretty good as far as they go. To be fair, it uh, seems slightly related with what its purpose is.
0: So look out for Dart. Um, But yeah, that's another quick question here from from Sandra. So sorry, I've just come online. Is there a comet visible tonight? Um, Well, it depends on if it's raining where I am at the minute. But um, but yeah, is there a particular part of the UK that you would get a better view of this, do you think? Or is it um, pretty similar wherever you are?
1: Yeah, it's probably going to be similar wherever you are, because it's it's rising in the east. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be coming up in the east, um, early hours of the morning. So uh, yeah, pretty much across across the UK, uh, provided you've got a nice clear night. I don't think any particular part of the UK would do any better. It's it's quite easy to locate as well, because you want to make a straight line down from uh, from from the big bright star Arcturus, and that should be hopefully where you should find this little fuzzy blob of light doing its little outgassing thing as it makes its way away from our little solar system oh isn't it nice there it is
0: so early hours of the morning
1: though what what sort of time would you be
0: would you, would you be looking at to put a time um, it's going to set, yeah. your, set
1: your alarm yes yeah, set set your alarm for early <laughs> <laughs> Peter, <laughs> this is a this is a part of the uh, conversation which I haven't um, checked times on specifically, but we'll do that right now. You do that, um, and
0: we will we will yeah, ask yeah. this question: um, Is space junk a concern when launching the James Webb? This is from Margie. Um, is that something you, we we hear a lot about uh, space junk? Not just space junk, but Russians, of course, blowing up their own satellites uh, certainly doesn't help. Um, what's what sort of considerations are, 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 are towards that sort of subject?
2: Yeah, um, space junk is a little bit of a concern nearby. Um, luckily, uh, where it's going to be, it, it's not as polluted an orbit. Um, yeah, If it was anywhere near the Earth, I would be terrified for that, that sun shield. It is very, very thin uh, and very light. Um, so, yeah, if you don't want, want any asteroid or micrometeorite or any junk um, destroying any part of that. Um, luckily, where Webb is going to be, we're not going to unfold until we're far enough away to mitigate any concerns of space junk possibly getting in the way. Um, what we are is in an orbit at L2. Uh, there was previous missions there. Um won't call them junk, but those missions like Planck and Herschel actually were moved out of that orbit to keep that as pristine as possible and keep astronomy that would ever go there in the future as safe as possible. So, yeah, space junk is a big concern of mine. Uh, luckily, hopefully for this, it shouldn't affect the mission too much we, we've tried to mitigate against anything that may cause a problem nearby okay but, yeah, yeah. Try, uh, we need we need some uh sort of garbage collection for space definitely in the not too distant future
0: yes the intergalactic dustbin lorry certainly needs to uh to be invented doesn't it but a million miles away is uh <laughs> is, a,
1: is a fair distance out isn't it it's really funny there's actually um a tv show just to uh, completely diverge from any point Entirely, um, there's a TV show on uh, on Netflix um, called Final Space, which is an, an adult animation TV show. I love Final Space; it's brilliant, um, and it's been cancelled, and I'm devastated. But anyway, um, so during that, there is actually a, a, a spaceship which goes around collecting garbage. So there we go; it's uh, it's it's in science fiction, therefore it'll be real in twenty years. Good stuff. Um, let's.
0: Uh... Well, it's
4: something they're trying to do.
1: Yeah. Is it? Well,
0: they're going to need to, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, like there's. <laughs>
4: There's an awful lot of um, proposals on the board, from what I understand, and a lot of ideas being trialled about how we can actually go up and collect space junk just to, you know, sort out the problems we've got. So, you know, it's something that I think could be a real reality very soon, really.
0: There you go. Watch this space. by shares in space junk um daniel says can you recommend this maybe for you adam uh, can you recommend the best stacking software to use as a beginner uh, and any recommendations to reduce trailing without spending a fortune on gear uh yeah well a couple yeah. of uh, issues there for the uh, for the beginner astrophotographer uh
3: it, it, it is hard um the earth is so annoying the fact that it's constantly spinning around it really makes uh ph- photographing the nighttime skies uh tough so um uh, wise I mean, it's going to depend on if you are a Windows or Mac user and such. I can recommend for Windows, Dan might be able to kind of recommend some stuff for Mac if you do have any on the Mac side. Um, however... Uh, the software sequitur so spelt like equator but with an s at the beginning uh, that's great for scapping That's for stacking and uh, uh, landscape kind of photography because uh, you can do things where you can freeze the foreground uh, and highlight specifically just the uh, the nighttime sky and you can stack the sky separate uh, uh, I think I, I've been able to get some really nice results and it. it's a completely free piece of software as well if you are thinking about deep sky photography uh, then uh, deep sky stacker that's a really good powerful piece of software um on uh, for the sky photography also free once again uh, when it comes to reducing trailing in the first place. That you're just going to have to reduce the exposure time of your uh, images. If you're kind of photography, if if you're taking photos with lots of uh, well, well, too long an exposure, then you're just going to end up with uh, trailing and whether it be little little sausage stars like cocktail sausage kind of stars uh, or massive trails either way they don't look great uh so what you can do is you can instead just have shorter exposures you can crank up the iso a bit the um the iso and just stack lots and lots and lots of pictures uh, and if you do use software like sequitur you can use um what are called dark frames as well uh, so calibration frames uh, to be able to um compensate for the noise uh to try and kind of smooth it out and uh so you go for a higher iso which gets lots of noise but you can, can try and cancel it out a bit in post-processing
0: that's one way of dealing with it and, and then i suppose the, if you want to spend a little bit of money you can get these mounts can't you that kind of track the the night sky a little bit but i suppose you're starting to spend a bit of cash there
3: yeah, so um, you can get kind of cost-effective ones. Uh, so uh, I've personally got uh, one called a Skywatcher Star Adventurer Pro. Uh, it's a really powerful a little, little little piece of kit. I think it's about £300. Stick on top of a tripod. And um, takes a little bit of setting up because you need to polar align, align it with the North Star. However, uh, you are able to get some really good kind of longer exposure images. And that way you don't have to worry about... Um, Trailing at all, you don't have to worry about it. really high ISO because you're getting a longer exposure, you're collecting a lot more light. Um, so you can get those, those star tracker uh, things, and, and
0: yeah, they're really good. <laughs> there you go, there's a few suggestions uh for you. Uh, we're taking your questions if you want to chip one in, um, we're probably um getting towards the back end a bit, but um, there's the if you want to sneak in there, uh, probably last call for it and uh, just to put a comment uh under the post here on the on the live video and uh they come straight through to us glenn Carr says we'll, we'll be able to see the asteroid that's coming at the weekend um it's the uh the, the comet isn't it this is leonard now uh, dan has done his research what's the what's the best time dan to see this yes you've got to, you've got to be up early um,
1: <laughs> Well, actually, he's not wrong by saying asteroid as well because there is an asteroid which is um, is passing by this week. Oh weekend. yes, I mean, the asteroid, asteroid. Yes, so everybody's by. panicking about that, aren't they? Uh, well, certain yeah, tabloids. I mean it's are. fine. It's, it's two and a half million miles away from us. I mean it's <laughs> it's really, really far away. Yes, it's the size of the Eiffel Tower. Yes, it would make a dent, but it's really far away, so we we don't need to worry too much about that. If it was coming towards us, we'd see it, all right. Um, but um, the comet, yeah, from from four o'clock in the morning uh tomorrow morning is is a good time to head out and see it in your or whatever you. Wear <laughs> yeah. <for that.
0: laughs> yeah wrap up warm though i would um so yeah if you've got clear skies for 4 a.m onwards that kind of time and the asteroid itself that's going to be something that you're not really going to see um uh, i would imagine is that right
1: yeah that's right yeah yeah yeah, we're not going to see that. It's too far away, and it's it's just too small. I mean, you have to remember with asteroids and such like that, they are um, not very reflective things. They're very, very small in the grand scheme of things. Uh, I mean, the size of the, imagine trying to spot the Eiffel Tower two and a half million miles away um, with and not it not being reflective. I mean, <laughs> it's just uh, it's so far away and so small. No, it's uh, it's not something we'll be able to see.
0: Okay, um, this might be one potentially for dr olivia um but um, how are the growing number of satellites affecting our opportunities of viewing the universe i think it's probably one for for everyone actually because obviously elon musk is uh, certainly doing his bit to change the night sky um but the, we just mentioned about the amount of space junk but there's there's a lot of stuff up there um does that does that affect our ability to to, to view what's going on in the universe either through uh through our naked eye through telescopes through radio telescopes
2: Um, Yeah, the short answer, I think, is yes. I think in the growing number of satellites, um, the trails that will impact, especially some of the large-scale astronomy surveys, like the uh, Rubin Observatory, which is going to have massive, large fields of view, very sensitive. Uh, There's going to be lots of satellite trails, unfortunately, across those images, which will disrupt our view of the universe. Um, Potentially less so um, with a naked eye, but not improbable that it will impact the naked eye observations of the sky as well. So it's quite a concern, I think, for the professional astronomy community. Um, There are benefits for them, obviously. There are also cons, and I think I would would err on the side of caution about launching so many large-scale satellite constellations in the sky. Um, I'll I'll let the other uh, members maybe chat more about this.
0: How has it affected you? At, at, you know, when you're looking and doing your observations through the telescopes at the observatory, and, uh, in terms of the amount of stuff up there, particularly when you've when you've had sightings of the the Elon Musk project um, unfurling, it must make for um, certainly tricky for 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 the astrophotographers uh, when when that's around. But uh, have you noticed any differences?
1: Yeah, I think uh, for us, it's. it's... For us, to be honest, when we see the satellites, I think that's a really great thing to talk to the public about. Um, and and them seeing satellites as well, it just gives you that that kind of feeling and sense of these things are really high up there, they're going around us. Um, it's almost like a, a, a feeling of depth on the sky when we see satellites, I think. So they're good for, for a few different reasons in terms of communicating with the public, I think. Yeah, for astrophotography, it's a bit of a pain to um, to edit them out of your astro-images. And you can spend quite a while with the spot removal tool trying to go <laughs> along all of these lines to try and get rid of them. Um, but equally, your aeroplanes as well. So, in fact, aeroplanes are probably harder to get rid of than uh, than satellites are in some images. It's just, of course, there is more and more satellites. Um, and as Olivia says, they, they are very, very useful as well. Um, we are in a very remote location at Kielder, um some constellations can give us uh improved ability to connect to the rest of the world and uh, improve our internet connectivity would be really crucial for if we start to do any heavier work that uh that may be asked of us um through some of the projects that we're working on right now so um so yeah it has it's uh, they have their perks um and they're definitely interesting to talk to the public about don't know if anybody else has got anything to add on that
3: Are you fair? I think you summed it up very well, there, Dan. Um, I mean, I, we see a train in the sky. It does look very, very cool. But from the photography uh, perspective, from the imaging of the sky, it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Because uh, kind of, the, the novelty, I think, is going to quickly wear off as more and more end up there, end up up there.
0: Okay, um, on to the final question. Um, it's a big one from James, who says, "Any predictions when the armpit will explode?" I assume, <laughs> I assume
1: that there is something to this. <laughs> there is, yes. Um, so, Betelgeuse is um, is is armpit. That's it. That's its name. Um, Betelgeuse apparently roughly translates to the word armpit, um, wow. and it is in the armpit of Orion. Um, um no predict. well i think this is probably just going to be a personal predictions um personally i like to just do the um the nightly battlegears check um check that it's still there and hasn't exploded that's always a very exciting interactive thing to do on a night time um and then to try and use jedi mind powers to get that to uh, to to explode quicker um but i'm not entirely sure if jedi mind powers move quicker than the speed of light so i might be Fighting a lost cause. there. Uh, uh, <laughs> anyone else? <laughs> uh,
2: may I? Um, so that's one of the stars which I have looked at its dust in a lot of detail, and a mm. lot of the evolved star community uh, were very excited during its great dimming event. Uh, and I've listened to many, many talks on its future. Um, and unfortunately, much of the great dimming was a combination of a solar spot and a dust formation event around this star. So I don't think it's going to explode anytime soon, but it's always good to check it's still there. It's one of my favorite stars. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Always good to check it still there, and um, hopefully that answers your uh, your, your questions there. Uh, Peter says many thanks for your insights tonight, very enjoyable. Well, thank you, Peter, for joining us and everyone else as well. It has been, uh, I, th- I think, we've, we've made it through, um, which is uh, which is uh, not to be uh, underestimated. Uh, thank you to everybody who has uh, given us a question, and uh, I suspect we'll do this again some other time. Um, but in the meantime, of course, if you do have any pressing questions on on space then you can always get in touch with uh, the astronomers at kielder observatory on the on the social media pages on this facebook page twitter instagram and i'm sure that somebody will be able to uh, answer uh, any of your questions um at their uh, earliest possible um, opportunity what's the best way of getting in touch uh, dan if anybody does have any uh, questions after this uh, this little broadcast which is about to end
1: oh so they can send them to they could email us um obzi at kielderobservatory.org that's O-B-S-Y at kielderobservatory.org or you can drop them through to our Instagram page which is at kielder underscore obs on is it that actually now no then <laughs> is it that or is that the Twitter handle oh um, that might be the Twitter handle actually hang on a second Here we Uh, go. On
3: Instagram, we're just
1: at Kielder Observatory. Yes, we are. When we we
0: pre-record the podcast, these are the bits that we usually edit out. Uh (laughs)
1: Me, Um, 90% of me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And um, yes, so it is at Kielder Observatory on on Instagram, as Adam says, and um, at Kielder underscore obs. On Twitter, so you could tweet us if you want to as well. Send us a message on Instagram. Our Instagram, to be honest, the the messages they get quite busy, so tweeting us is often a quicker way of getting an answer. Or sending us an email that that's also a really good way as well and of course hope to see
0: you up there at st Kielder observatory at sometime soon um quick update on um the availability because uh, i know that, that a lot of the sessions are very full i've had a lot of cancellations over the last couple of weeks though uh, of course with um the fact the observatory has been closed if people want to um look into coming to visitors over the coming months as we head into 2022 um the sessions are, are available to book now aren't they on, online
1: Yes, all the way through to August and soon to be added will be the latter parts of 2022 as well. We're just confirming the schedule of that. Um, We're always trying to add on extra small events and such as well, um, here and there if we've got the capacity to do so. Obviously, we've had quite a lot of cancellations which have been completely out of our control and we're we're quite aware that we want to try and cater for as many people as as we can. Um, So any opportunity to do that. And of course, we're also doing these small ad hoc events every now and again where we just turn up in a park with yeah. a telescope and look at some stuff in space with dog walkers and things yeah i've got a picture um, of that there so, you go no, there you are, yeah, look, there's, there's gregoire and he's, he's telling it is it gregoire yeah it is isn't yeah, it okay Gre-
3: Gre- Gre- gregoire is the uh, the one with the red light on his head there he is yeah uh, <laughs> I, i'm behind the camera
0: ah there you go you see yeah so th- these little pop-up events that uh that sometimes happen so you just got to keep your eye on the social media pages that's the tip and and as well because um with, with the way of the world we do get um short notice covid cancellations so if uh, people can't make it because of uh, the old uh, the old lateral flow or whatever is uh is, is, is not permitted um then sometimes people do cancel at short notice and um, they're usually shared on facebook aren't they dan and uh, people can uh, maybe grab a short notice yeah. trip if you're if you're able to make it with a, with a couple of hours notice
1: And I think it's probably important to stress as well that the observatory operates with um, a lot of ventilation. Of course, we're outside. (laughs) (laughs) And we're in a shed It's definitely (laughs) ventilated (laughs) Very well ventilated uh, building Um, And um, we try and keep social distance where possible Everybody has to wear a face mask inside As is the guidance now anyway That's always been the case for us Regular cleaning all of the time And reduced capacity to make sure that we are not overcrowded So we do take it very, very seriously um, As everybody should be at this precise moment in time
0: And that's about it from us then for the Kielder Observatory podcast for December and therefore for 2021 as well. Thanks for joining us in this episode, which was live streamed, the recording on Facebook, which is why that you'll have heard a few questions being asked throughout the the course of it. And hopefully we'll do that again at some point as well. So you can ask an astronomer if you've got any pressing questions. Keep up to date with everything that's happening at Kielder Observatory on our um, social media pages and on our website. It's Kielder Observatory. And of course, you can also find all the details of the actual sessions that you can attend on there as well. And keep an eye out for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Have a fantastic Christmas and here's to a prosperous and happy 2022. Take care.